as you're getting situated, if you would turn into your copy of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 14. I've very much appreciated the prayers for the preaching time this morning. There's more moving parts in the presentation this morning, and uh, sometimes I'm not real smooth with that, so I, I just pray that God will speak through his word and that some of these things won't be distracting, but that they will help us understand what takes place a little bit better. The route of Exodus comes into very sharp focus here in chapter 14. The men, women, and children of Israel are marching headlong on a path that appears destined to inescapable disaster. Pharaoh, like a dazed prize fighter, knocked almost unconscious in every round of his ten plague battle, suddenly awakens from his emotional stupor and paralysis. Quickly, he amasses his finest war machine and unleashes them on a mission of revenge against the hapless Israelites, who left his once proud nation in a state of poverty, ruin, and utter death. Israel appears lost and uncertain, doomed to annihilation at the hands of this hate-filled ruler. The Egyptian Pharaoh, on the other hand, gains more and more control by the hour as this account reaches its greatest crisis at the foot of mountains and the bank of a sea. But as you know already, and as Scripture has proclaimed for thousands of years, all was not how it seemed. Exodus 14 reveals Yahweh moving his foe Pharaoh and his Egyptian army into apparent military advantage, provoked by bloodthirsty revenge and a greatly miscalculated confidence. At the same time, Yahweh places his children Israel into a seemingly helpless vulnerability. And as they respond with frustration, and hopelessness. Every moment, every moment of this grand confrontation was designed for Yahweh's three divine purposes. They are repeated throughout this story. One, to gain honor over Pharaoh and his army. Two, so that Egypt will know that he is Yahweh. He is the Lord. And thirdly, that he would establish fear and faith in the hearts of his children. Let's pray as we begin to read this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. This chapter is, is a mountain. And I am not a match for, for one of its pebbles. But Father, your spirit is. And your spirit would speak, we ask this morning. Then teach us, as has been prayed, of the sovereignty of God. The hope that is in you. Your desire for honor. Your love for your people. But also your justice and your revenge and the mighty God that you are in every aspect. Lord, please open up our minds to see you as your scriptures say, not as we've perhaps thought, as the world would say, as, as we would prefer, but show us who you are, Lord, please, through your word this morning. And then change us, Lord. Change us so that the brief life that we have left will be used for the glory and honor of Christ. In your name I pray. Amen. 
I'd like to start with Exodus 13, verse 17. When it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Now verse 20. So they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. We begin then in, verse, in chapter 14 with what is the prophecy and the purpose of God. It's like a pre-mission briefing between God and man. From the one God Yahweh to his one trusted servant. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahirath between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon. So you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his armies that the Egyptians may know that I am Yahweh the Lord. And they did so. Now, behind me you will see a layout of the locations where the events of Exodus 14 occurred. Up here in the north, we have what is called the land of Goshen. It's in this Nile Delta area. And as we've seen before, it was very lush. It's very well watered. It's where Jacob and his family ended up staying when he came back to meet his son Joseph, who was second in command in Egypt. And they settled in that land of Goshen, perfect for what they did best, and that was sheep herding. Up in that same area is the city of Ramses. Ramses is where essentially the exodus began as the children of Israel came out of the land of Goshen. Then you will see here in the middle, and I might as well use this. This is the Sinai Desert or the Sinai Wilderness. Here is where most of the exodus march will take place. At the far southern tip, is one particular mountain that some have believed to be the biblical Mount Sinai. Over here to the southeast is the area called Midian. It also contains a mountain down in this area here that may also have been, or rather may have been, Mount Sinai. In the middle at the bottom we see the Red Sea, a very large body of water, and then here and here are two gulfs, the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. Most of these sites are fairly well agreed upon that that is where they are. But almost all of the rest of the locations that we are interested in this morning come with a lot of uncertainty and disagreement. Uncertainty about places of significance, ones that are mentioned in verse 2, like Pi Hahirath. That's translated to mean the mouth of the canal or mouth of the gorge and that will be important later on. Migdal 
That can be translated as a tower or a fortress or even as a mountain. Baal Zephon literally means the Lord of the North. You hear Baal Zephon, Lord of the North. And then the sea, it's, it's the word Yam and often it appears as the Red Sea or Yam Suf. It's mentioned in Exodus 13, 15, and in 23. This map behind me shows at least five suggested routes the pillar of cloud may have led Israel on. Giving a solid defense of any of these routes would take much more time than we have this morning. I've enjoyed reading through numerous commentaries and study Bibles, watching several hours of video about this route. It's been, been exciting. I've very much enjoyed it. I'm obviously no expert, but here is what in my humble estimation appears to be the most biblically plausible route. This is the one that seems to best match scripture. Across the middle here is what would have been considered the Central Sinai trade route. <clears throat> we know that they didn't go to the north by way of the land of the Philistines. God had prevented that. And he says, so if they would have been faced with war, they would have perhaps run back to Egypt. He didn't send them that way. I believe what he did do is send them through the central part of Sinai. It passes through the Sinai wilderness as this route then approaches the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. Right here, it turns sharply north and heads to the area of Jerusalem and the land of Canaan. Now, <clears throat> contrary to what you might think, the desert in that area is not soft desert sand. But actually it's a rather firm road-like surface because it has a large percentage of limestone mixed in with the soil there. It was a solid path allowing for good footing and fairly rapid travel. <clears throat> in verse 2 this morning, an abrupt command from Yahweh radically changes what so far had been a fairly typical passage from Egypt to the land of Canaan. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel that they turn or turn back and camp before Pi-Hahirath between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. So in theory, what possibly was going on is they were heading this way and anticipating going that direction, but instead the pillar of cloud moves them southeasterly. <clears throat> now, their entire route contains no hint of an ocean crossing. How are we going to cross the Red Sea was never on Moses' radar. Why? Because as you can see in the picture, there was no sea on the route to the land of Canaan. An ocean crossing was never anticipated by Moses and Israel, nor by the fast approaching predator Pharaoh and his army. Yahweh's unexpected change of direction in verse 2 surprises everyone. And I believe this is why, at this juncture in verse 2, the Lord does not rely solely on the pillar of cloud to lead Israel. What does he do here? He speaks to, you, to Moses directly and he gives specific backup instruction to Moses to backtrack and head southeast. This would have seemed contrary to their purpose. We are leaving a well-traveled route and heading into a rugged mountainous terrain straight toward an ocean. In fact, 
with the intelligence information Pharaoh receives, he determines that Israel is now aimlessly lost. They have gone off track. They are actually walking right into a geographical trap. The topography of the area suddenly turns into winding gorges hemmed in on each side by walls of steep, sheer mountains. This slide gives you a picture of what that mountainous gorge region was when they veered off the track. This would have been looking down through the gorge to its opening onto this beach. In just a few miles now, they will be trapped in a dead end at the shore of the Red Sea. Has Israel arrived at the Red Sea? Or is it the Reed Sea? Or what is this place? There is much dispute about where the Red Sea crossing took place. Some researchers believe Red Sea or Yam Suf is better translated as Sea of Reeds. That theory is based on assuming that the word Suf is a word borrowed from the Egyptian language and can mean reed, like a papyrus or cattails that grow along the shores of many shallow rivers and lakes even in our area. Consequently, these folks also believe a reed sea crossing must have taken place at a shallow marshy lake, usually somewhere in northern Egypt, just outside of Ramses. And you would be surprised how strong this is thought of among scholars. They believe the wind and tides must have created a natural opportunity for Israel to cross to the other side of the shallow marsh at a very opportune moment. And then at the change of the winds and tide, as it reversed, it would trap the Egyptians. But, but an honest reading of the text of Exodus 14 does not allow for this kind of a picture. Exodus 14 and several other scriptures depicting a suddenly dry pathway for Israel. Created by an east wind assume amassing walls of water on their right and their left. Soldiers and chariots sinking to the bottom of mighty waters like stones. That does not sound like a shallow three to six foot deep lake with lots of cattails growing around it. A more feasible option points to the Gulf of Aqaba. And there are others but I want to just focus on this this morning. And here are a few reasons why. While the term Yam Suf may not be certain in Exodus 14, the term Red Sea or Yam Suf unquestionably refers to the Gulf of Aqaba in at least seven other Old Testament scriptures. And they are there on your worksheet. It's Numbers 14.25, 21.4, Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 2, 1 Kings 9, and Jeremiah 49. But explicitly in Exodus 23.31, it is almost universally agreed that when Yahweh refers to the Red Sea as the southern border of his promised land, he is clearly speaking of this Gulf of Aqaba. For many reasons, the Gulf of Aqaba seems to be a more biblically plausible candidate for the catastrophic event we read about in Exodus 14. The Red Sea crossing is also constantly depicted as occurring in the midst of deep or mighty waters rather than a marshy landscape. Again, the verses are in your handout. Exodus 15, 
Nehemiah 9, Psalm 77, Psalm 106, Isaiah 43, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 63. All of these use a description of deep waters and mighty waters that the children of Israel passed through and that destroyed the Egyptians. Donald Redford, a leading Egyptologist at Penn State University, also suggests that the word suf may be translated to mean not only read, but also could be the word for destruction. He would say that it could be translated, that Yom Suf could be translated as the sea of destruction or the sea of the end, which would be most appropriate. The site shown in these last two slides actually is along the west coast of the Gulf of Aqaba. It is called Nueva Beach. Now, I hope, hope you guys are still with me. This gets really interesting here. This quite possibly could be the site of the Exodus 14 Red Sea crossing. It fits with the translation of Pi Hahirath to mean at the mouth of the gorge. It is in a location near Migdol, if one understands Migdol in this case to be towering mountains. It is situated on the shore of what the Bible often calls Yam Suf or the Red Sea. Now this little beach doesn't appear so large in this picture, but is approximately 11 square miles of flat open space, enough to amass the fleeing two million Israelites. The crossing from the western to the eastern shore at Nuibi, Nuiba is about 10 miles across the Gulf of Aqaba. The lowest depth of the Gulf at this location is 2,800 feet. But this is very interesting. On both the western and eastern shores at this particular point, the grade or the slope is only a very gradual 6 to 7 percent. That is similar to many highway grades that you drive on. It's even less than the maximum grade for a wheelchair ramp. A dry land sea path with this incline would not be difficult at all for the nation of Israel to hike through. If you'd like to talk about, about this location and why more afterwards, I would love to do that and I could pass on to you some excellent resources on this. But, but to me, as I looked through this, it gave me the picture of what is happening here as the Israelites are being pursued and where they have ended up and why they're in such a treacherous situation. Back to the actual events in Exodus 14. Verses 5 through 9, we have the pursuit by Pharaoh. And how soon, how soon we forget. Verse 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. Unfortunately, Pharaoh did not have the advantage that we have to look back and read from Exodus 12, verse 31, which would have reminded him why. Verse 31 from chapter 12, Then he called, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron at night, and he said, Rise up and get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord, as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we will all be dead. 
How quickly they forgot. But the loss of slaves equals the loss of comforts. It equals the loss of economy. The loss of slaves means loss of power. Suddenly, this became unbearable to Pharaoh. Blind ambition and pride spurred him on. Verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and he took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath before Baal-Zephon. The chariot. The chariot was the high-tech military weapon of its time. It was the Egyptian version of the famed M1A2 Abram tank. Verse 7 implies that there were chariots and then there were the choice chariots. The F-35 lightnings of the two-wheeled attack vehicles. Pharaoh unleashed 600 of his finest and fastest attack squadron, supported by a battalion of lesser chariots. Notice, there is no mention of any foot soldiers. This was a fast-moving fleet, chasing what appears to be a hapless, struggling crowd of families on foot. It's a pack of wolves racing after a large flock of lost sheep heading into a dead-end canyon. The children of Israel find themselves trapped at the shore of the mighty ocean, mountains on both sides, and a hostile Egyptian army pressing down upon them through the mountains. You can almost picture Pharaoh salivating as his scouts bring back intelligent reports of the desperate Israelites. At some point, I wonder if he didn't think, how could this turn out so easy? Why are they doing this? At the same time, things grow even worse at the camp of Israel. The protests of the people. Verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of the Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. They were literally terrorized. So how do they respond? And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. At well, first glance, that looks pretty good. But look what is revealed. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. They went out with boldness, but look where they are now. The Israelites' nasty sarcasm chasm belies the fact that their crying out to the Lord was more of a knee-jerk reaction from terror than a sincere plea to Yahweh for help. You've seen it in many a social media account from a flood or a fire. Many an unbeliever has been recorded crying out to God for help while at the same time cursing the name he just cried out to Less than two weeks earlier, Israel had just witnessed the Lord decimate Egypt and its Pharaoh through a series of ten devastating plagues. Yet now, both their faith in Yahweh and their fear of Him are gone. 
Israel gives up on Yahweh and they turn against Moses. Suddenly their memories are just like Pharaoh's. They can't remember why they ever wanted to leave the slavery in Egypt. But God, but God is good, always. But God will still irresistibly accomplish His purpose, which was what? To gain His honor. God will still irresistibly gain His honor in a world which opposes Him, and even at times in our lives when we doubt and resist His will. In Isaiah 46, God said this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Unlike the children of Israel, Moses was not discouraged by the people's protest, nor frightened by Pharaoh's blitzkrieg. Why? Why could he respond like that? Because his eyes were where? His eyes were on Yahweh, his Lord God. Isaiah 45, verse 22, the prophet said, Look to me and be saved, says God. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Micah 7, verse 7, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. That was not natural for Moses. But it was obedient. Our natural flesh dishonors God. But our obedience brings Him glory. In verse 13, Moses gives a prophetic proclamation. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see. And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish today. For you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more. Forever. The Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace and the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And I've wondered, what did he think at that moment? It's like God's telling him to do something he did every day. But he's never done this. God says, Pick up that rod, put it over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow you. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh. There it is again. I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his armies, his chariots and his horsemen. And again, then the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. When I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Be still and watch. Watch what God will do. The song that we sang this morning, beautiful, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen, among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Suddenly, suddenly the pieces of Yahweh's amazing plan are being revealed. And they are coming together perfectly. Verse 19, protection by that pillar. Remember the pillar. 
Remember the pillar we read about last week? It, it showed God's presence, His protection, and the path. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus, it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. The angel of God, the angel of God in the pillar of cloud and fire, moves from the forefront as navigator of the path to the rear guard as protector for the people. The pillar becomes a blinding barrier of utter darkness, thick nighttime darkness to Pharaoh. The Egyptian chariots are held at bay. They cannot proceed. But on the other side of that cloud, at that exact same time, the very same pillar, it began to illumine the coming ocean pathway for Israel's nighttime escape. And then comes the moment we've looked forward to. The performance of honor. This will bring glory to God. The pathway opens. The sea obeys. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And he made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. You see, our God can instantly stir the mighty winds and dry up an ocean pathway. Conversely, with but a word, He can make a savage hurricane instantly disappear into a glass-smooth lake, perfect for sailing. In Luke 8, 24, verse 24 and 25, And they, these are the veteran sailors, that were following Jesus, his disciples, they came to him and they awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying one to another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. As Isaiah 25 said, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. This idea of making the waters move, creating the winds and putting them in place, had been in God's resume for many, many centuries. He created them all. He did them at the Red Sea. He did them at the Lake of Galilee. Then we have deliverance in verse 22. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This path of rescue for the Israelites becomes a lure for the Egyptians. Look what happens here. And the Egyptians pursued. And they went after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Hebrews 11:29 says by faith the Israelites passed through the Red Sea as by dry, dry land whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned verse 24 Now it came to pass in the morning watch and the morning watch is the final watch of the night it comes from 2 a.m. until 6 a.m. the final watch of the night 
At that point, the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. That's interesting. Before crushing them, he causes the highly trained warriors to become disturbed and distraught, helpless. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. Evidently, God caused the wheels and other parts of the chariots to become stiff, to stop turning, to malfunction, to even fall off the axles. And as a result, the Egyptian soldiers cry out, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Finally, finally in the midst of a seabed, they find themselves Walls of water, likely hundreds of feet high on each side. And their trusty chariots become junk metal and scrap wood. And suddenly they confess the undeniable truth. Yahweh fights for his people. And he is fighting against us. Then the pathway closes. The sea that destroys Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Deuteronomy 32 reads, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. What a picture of what happened in the Red Sea. But this sea was not only one that destroyed It was a sea that distinguished. A sea that distinguished. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of that same sea. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I believe that Yahweh distinguished between the Egyptians and his people throughout each of the ten plagues that occurred. Now scripture tells us with certainty that Israel was was protected from the fourth plague of flies, the fifth of the livestock disease, the sixth of boils, the seventh of hail, the ninth, the three days of darkness, and the tenth, the slaughter of the firstborn. The first three plagues as well as the eighth are not specifically recorded as safe for Israel, but it seems very much likely, highly likely. In this case, Yahweh uses the very same ocean pathway to give life to his friends and death to his foes. Then we have the purpose. What was the purpose of all this for Yahweh's people? How would this make a difference in their lives? Verse 30 tells us, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Evidence. Evidence living and dead. It supports Yahweh's claim from Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. Listen to this. This verse is rarely preached and spoken. It is I who put to death and give life. 
I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. When you fathom that, seeing thousands of bodies lying on the beach, what will that do to you? Verse 31, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. You see, the morning following that crossing, many bodies lied the beach of the Red Sea. A multitude of them were men, women, and children standing on the surf, singing praise to God. While another great number were bodies silently washing ashore, lifeless and still. The impact of the safe, dry land under their feet and the sight of countless dead Egyptian bodies on the sand was life-changing. Scripture says that the people feared the Lord. You see, this is a lost ingredient, I believe, in the hearts of many contemporary believers. Simply love God, trust God, believe God, but fear Him? That's Old Testament stuff. Not my God. Brothers and sisters, this may be the strongest reason why there is so much compromise and little difference between the lives of many contemporary confessing Christians and the pagans or the nuns that believe in nothing. Here's a small portion of scripture calling us to the fear of the Lord. Psalm 115, verse 13. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. Deuteronomy 10. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Acts 9, 31, the early church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Proverbs 14 we know this one, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. This work of Yahweh also caused Israel to believe the Lord and his servant Moses. The Bible repeatedly tells us that faith changes everything. Faith is required in order to be right with the Lord God. Faith is required to be saved from sin and death. Faith is an essential to have eternal life. Genesis 15 verse 6. It describes Abraham many centuries before this Israeli crossing of the Red Sea. There we read, Then Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. John 5.24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life 
and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Paul. Paul fleshes out the meaning of faith so that we can see even more keenly what this is. Romans 4. What does the scripture say? It says Abraham believed on God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to him who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Faith, fear of God, faith in God. Galatians. Galatians 3.10 For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Fear and faith in our God. That's what this whole Red Sea crossing engendered in the people of God more than anything. God often orchestrates life in this manner. His glory is his greatest goal. But his love for his children is inextricably entwined with that glory. As he gains honor, he simultaneously grants fear of God and faith in God to his children. You see, the Red Sea crossing is probably a very timely account for many of us to examine very carefully. Does your confidence in our God rest upon circumstances you are experiencing? Are you on that beach with the Red Sea on one side, mountains on the other, and an attack coming down through the gorge? A diagnosis that you just found out your wife has stage four cancer. The company that you worked for for 10, 15 years has folded and now you're unemployed. One of your dear children has turned their back on Christ and wants nothing to do with it. Your friends seem to have rejected you and seem so alone. Things can seem hopeless. They seemed hopeless to Israel as they sprinted through that gorge trying to escape Pharaoh. But were they, I ask you? That is the key. They seemed utterly hopeless, but were they? We have the advantage of the scriptures. We can see that they were never out of the hands of the sovereign God. They were all part of this wonderful symphony of sovereignty that he would display for his glory and his honor and to build his children up. But sometimes it doesn't seem that way. If you are chased down, you are taunted, mocked, imprisoned, falsely accused, unjustly punished, where will your focus be? How will you respond? 
There is somebody who has been through that. 1 Peter 2. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it, if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten the key, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Christ is our example. But how could he respond in such a way to the grossest forms of injustice and persecution? He did the same thing Moses did. The same thing we are to do. He kept his eyes on the Father. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And he knew that all was safe in his Father's hand. He, Yahweh, is trustworthy. He is worthy of all praise. Exodus 14 this morning, verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. No matter what you're in, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Wait upon the Lord. May God use this to us in our life, use this in our lives, that we might be those who bring honor to His name every place we go, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our places of work. May we be those whose eyes are fixed on the author and finisher of our faith. That when the Red Sea disasters seem to be pressing upon, as bleak as it looks, we know that God knows every moment ahead. He is worthy. He is trustworthy. And if you do not know this God, my friend, you need him desperately. He is your only hope. Cry out that he will show himself to you. Repent and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your account here of one of the most amazing events in the history of mankind. The two million of your children would escape the clutches of an enraged madman. And not only escape, but you would use that as a trap. Father, you are so amazing. And yet, my faith is so shallow. Lord, forgive me, forgive my brothers and sisters here. When we doubt you, when we dishonor you, as the Israelites did, Teach us to be like Moses, Father. Teach me to be like Moses, that, that I will not look at what I can see, but I will look at you, who sees all things perfectly. Lord, thank you for being our Father. Thank you for your patience and your long-suffering for us as you create in us, as you did in the Israelites, fear in you and faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.